Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. History is complex and generalizations are a historian's inaccurate, crude, and necessary tool. So I'll make one. The post-Civil War era of Reconstruction is perhaps the least understood, or when something is known about it, most misunderstood period in American history. In addition to knowing little more about it than the bare facts presented as a footnote in a history survey text, many of us have engravings about it. That is, to paraphrase Mark Twain, we know things about it that just aren't so. That reconstruction remains so unfamiliar, opaque, and engraved, despite the opinions of so many historians to the contrary, may be one of the more puzzling conundrums in American popular history. With me to share his learned perspective on Reconstruction is Dr. Douglas Egerton, a professor of American history at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York. He has since 1989 produced a literal bookshelf of works on enslavement and liberty. Along with his 2010 Year of Meteors, Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, and the election that brought on the Civil War, and the 2009 Death or Liberty, African Americans and Revolutionary America, his 2014 book, The Wars of Reconstruction, Construction, the brief violent history of America's most progressive era, forms, uh, to my mind at least, a trilogy on the African-American struggle for liberty. I should note, uh, finally, that this conversation comes about as a result of a listener request from Dr. Jerry Herbert. If you, you would like to hear a conversation about a particular historical event, a historian, a book, a place, or anything else we talk about in this program, I'd welcome your suggestion. Please jo join our Facebook group and post a request. So, um, Douglas Egerton, what are some of the misconceptions that people, and I'm, I'm not thinking about... Um, neo-confederates uh, who want to be repaid for their lost slaves, okay? I'm, ta I'm talking about sort of even northern white liberals who might even drive a Subaru or a Saab. Um, what are some of the misconceptions that we have about Reconstruction? Well, I think probably the, the main one is that um, there was something corrupt about it, that it was designed to, to punish the white South, that it was meant to be vindictive. Um, I, I think it's it's not only not taught well in most schools, it's, it's often not taught in schools. I, I do a lot of talks to high school teachers, um, and they seem to kind of skip over it. And, and they get to the end of the war in Appomattox, and then all of a sudden there's the Westward Movement, and, and there's the, the Lakota and the Indian Wars. Um, I think in part because they're not sure also what to make of it either. Um, and so it seems to be this kind of sort of big gap uh, in the American knowledge. And so either they don't know anything about it, what they do know, um, I think is is pretty wrong. I, I think that, don't you think it's part of the way that we structure the American History Survey? And we stop usually in 1865. Sure. And uh, then we pick, so either if we go on to do Reconstruction, uh, it gets shuffled into the very end of the war, or we get blown over as we head towards the Gilded Age or something more interesting, um, quote unquote. It's just a, a very strange way, I think, that we teach American history. Yeah, I think so. And, and of course, you know, one of the jobs that historians have to do is, is to impose periodization on the past. And, and 
there's a reason to do that, but it also makes it sort of very artificial. And so every every textbook will tell you that Reconstruction grinds to a halt in 1877, which is absolutely not the case. That's a, a completely sort of fraudulent uh, date. Uh, the, the kind of classic work, of course, the, the mammoth work on Reconstruction is by Eric Foner, which stops in 77. And and, and Eric told me that, that they made him stop in 77 because they had another book in the series that began in 77. Uh, and all the textbooks say it began in 1977. <laughs> so it must be, must be true. Right. Right. So, uh, so, so we've got that problem. So we we don't see reconstruction is really going on. Well, I would I think of it like if I had to put a date on when it ends, it's like the Wilmington uh, coup of 1898. But anyway, we can we can argue about that. But reconstruction is a long period in American history. Sure, and, and we could also talk, you know, later on about about reconstruction in the North. Yes, um, that, would wait, be, that would be another misconception. Reconstruction is something that happens only in the South. Right, but I was going to say, for example, if if you are um, a working class black voter I, in my Syracuse, I live in Syracuse, New York, uh, Reconstruction doesn't doesn't end. Um, and uh, it ends in the South. Uh, the last, the last congressman, George Henry White, essentially walks away from power in 1901. North Carolina, they've gerrymandered his district. He's going to lose again. But that, that's the year that McKinley is assassinated. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are actually places in the South where, where, where local black political involvement actually rises after 1877. Mm-hmm. Uh, what white Democrats want is to. It's like modern voter suppression laws. Um, they simply want to carry the state electoral college. They don't really care if there's a black sheriff in, in a black belt county in Alabama, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but again, right? If you are if you are a black veteran who comes home to Chicago, Illinois, Reconstruction never ends. Yeah, and we. I mean, I just to. Build on the last thing. The readjuster movement, as I recall, in Virginia is 1880s, and that's the last I think shared black-white government in the in the South, but maybe a lot in much of the United States too. Um, well, but but very- but uh, Langston is is uh, in Congress in Virginia in the in the uh, from Virginia yeah. in the 1880s. Um, so so again, there's 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 kind of no clear ending, even even in much of the South. Right. Okay. Any other misconceptions? Um, well, yeah, that, that it was that it was um, corrupt. That it was corrupt, um, and it's not just a popular misconception. Um, there's also a fairly recent book out, No Names, uh, on on Reconstruction, um, and and it talks about uh, one of the people I've been writing about in in my next book, which will be out in in the fall. Shameless plug there. Uh, <laughs> Is um, is a, a mixed race uh, man from Elmira, New York, who joins the 54th Massachusetts, um, stays in Charleston uh, when the war is over, and gets into state politics. He's in the state senate until he's run out by the Klan. I mean, there's always allegations that there's corruption going on, and, and this new book mentions him, in fact, as being sort of an example of people who are are stealing from the public dole. Um, I, I've seen his his pension report. When he dies, um, he has $672 in the bank. So so if he's stealing, he's really bad at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's nothing to steal down there. I mean, the reality is Boss Tweed stole more money in one afternoon in, in Manhattan than existed in the entire South in the years after 1865. They had all their, their money tied up in, in slaves. It was liquidated yeah. by, by emancipation. Anything else? Um... Well, yeah, sure. Just that it was that it was punishment, and and, and this is, I think, the legacy of, of popular culture. Things like "Gone to the Wind" and "Birth of a Nation," um, that people like Thad Stevens wanted to kind of punish the South. And, and you know, when I give public talks and people raise that question, my response is, "What part of democracy 
uh, is punishment, but part of, of good interracial schools for children, including white children, is punishment. Um, and again, that's what what's, I find so interesting um, about popular culture like Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind is even people who haven't seen it mm-hmm. um, uh, <laughs> sort of picked up on that, that kind of notion. I, I ask my students, um, what does Sherman do when he gets to Atlanta? And, and a few of them have seen Gone with the Wind. They all say he burned, he burned Atlanta. I was yeah. like, well, actually, he didn't. Atlanta. He burnt some warehouses. I don't know if your listeners know what actually is being burnt in the movie. Um, it's the King Kong set. Um, <laughs> they, they, they built this giant wall for a biblical epic called King of Kings, and then they used it for the King Kong wall. And they were done with it. Of course, they filmed Gone with the Wind in Los Angeles. They wanted a big fire, so they burnt the King Kong set. Um so it's those kinds of popular misconceptions that, that are really hard to eradicate. Yeah, I, I think the uh, it's so much of the idea of Sherman burning my uh, family's farm down. It's really yeah. always amazing how late that started. Uh, yeah. It's really not until I think the 1890s, 1900s that that really begins in Georgia. Um, but few, few Georgians today realize that. Uh, no matter No matter what their background or views, they think of it as a long-standing yeah. tradition. I think if you ask most most Americans north or south um, in 1938 what what Sherman did in the South, they would say we well, tore up tracks and burnt bridges and and emancipated slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, but the year after Gone with the Wind, they'd all say, oh, he burnt he burnt the entire city. And I was yeah. actually on on a train about a year ago in Belgium, found myself sitting across from a guy from Georgia who asked me what I did, then wanted to tell me all about the things that Sherman did wrong. So I had to explain the whole King Kong set to him, and he was he was quite mystified. So, <laughs> um, so we talked uh, we talked about the the almost impossibility of setting an end date to Reconstruction. Um, we also have the tendency to see Reconstru- the Civil War ending uh, when Lee signs the surrender yep. paper. We have a tendency to see Reconstruction beginning with then. I have to say, when people read your book, if they know anything about it, you very carefully steer away from the whole congressional versus presidential Reconstructions, all that sort of thing. Um, so when should we say that Reconstruction actually began? Um, it begins during during the war. It begins during the war for a variety of reasons, and and you know most traditional accounts um, look at Lincoln's ten percent plan, and Congress pushes back with with the Wade Davis bill, which Lincoln pocket vetoes, and so um, most classical accounts have it starting in eighteen sixty three when. When giant chunks of the South are about to come under U.S. control, and then so it's clear the U.S. has to have some kind of policy dealing with these these huge pieces, the the Georgia Carolina coast area runs in New Orleans, but but for me, um, the earlier date is not because of the fight in Washington; it's because of what black activists are pushing from the outside, and so. Um, 1863 is the, is the first kind of really big Civil War era um, black convention. There'd been, of course, black anti-slavery conventions before the war. They mostly died out after Dred Scott, and black activists just kind of gave up. Um, and and so, black activists, people like Frederick Douglass, but 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 you know, hundreds of people began pushing for real reform. And so again, here I am in Syracuse. Um, the really big convention took place in three days in October 1864 um, in the Wesleyan Methodist Church here in Syracuse. It's now a Mexican restaurant. Um, it's not very good, by the way. <laughs> I was born and raised in Arizona, so I can say that. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not very good. Uh, but 150 uh, activists, 149 men and, and a woman just kind of elbowed her way in the door, a 19-year-old woman. Um, 
Because black activists, some of them, of course, like Douglas had been born into slavery in the South, had been living in the North, others were from the North, um, understood this was not simply a war against Jeff Davis. This was a war against entrenched American racism, which, of course, was all all across the South. Douglas once said this was a war of national reclamation. Um, so where white Republicans in Washington thought this was a policy aimed at, at Alabama, um, black soldiers from Ohio who couldn't vote in Ohio, uh, by the way, until 1870, um, understood this was this was not simply, it was of course a war against slavery, it was also a war against segregation, um, racism in the North. And, and so they were determined to kind of really push Congress um, and their Republican allies on that, on that issue. So for me, Reconstruction begins outside the Beltway. <laughs> yeah. And, and Reconstruction throughout, uh, this is a fantastic book, um, precisely because it's filled, I mean, I have so many notes about and quotes from the, the people that you're quoting um, and showing that here are these people who maybe a week before, literally a week before had been enslaved. Yeah. and yet are demonstrating that they have human agency um, and that they are taking control of their destiny. Uh, slavery has not destroyed uh, their ability uh, to be agency. It has not made them childlike, to use a, 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 a turn of phrase of the time. Uh, and also, also, I think that often we think that it did that, that somehow it deprived them of their humanity. But what you see throughout this book is, this, is people exercising their humanity in powerful, powerful ways. It's uh, brilliant in that regard. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. And it, it's certainly true that, that every, every slave, especially in rural districts on a big plantation, um, learned how to wear the mask. Yeah. Uh, and as a survival technique and pass that on to their their sons especially the, you know the master talks to you you look down you shuffle your feet um, and and for southern whites who've convinced themselves that really is the true african american personality when the mask is torn off and it's usually it's torn off when when black men in blue uniforms come marching by um, they're just absolutely shocked. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but it, yeah. I just say in terms of the Black Convention movement, again, it starts in Syracuse in '64. But but a week after Robert Lee surrenders, um, there's a Black Convention held in in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. Robert Johnston, um, a black shoemaker, organizes a meeting in his house. And and yeah, these people they've not been cowed. Um, and the second they they can safely uh, begin to organize. They do so. Let's talk about some of the ways in which the things that they do and things that they organize for. So one of the, the, the things that I was really tickled um, was, uh, well, a, a bit of a digression here. Uh, people have often said, say, Michael Burlingame, uh, Lincoln's most recent big, thick biographer, that Lincoln has a very curious idea of the injustices of slavery is in that he emphasizes the deprivation of the labor, of uh, the fruit of labor. And that's very Lincolnian. I mean, it's a free labor argument, but for Lincoln, what's wrong is that the sweat of one person's brow should give bread to another. But far from being idiosyncratic to Lincoln, what you show is over and over again, that is precisely the understanding that slaves have of the injustice of their condition, or one of the understandings they have. Yeah. So, for example, talk about how they protected cotton. I thought that was... That's, well, you know, as far as, as far as they're concerned, you know, the, the master believes that, that he owns them, he owns the estate, he owns the cotton. Their view always is, is that... You know, they've, they've 
participated in, in the productivity of this estate. Yeah. Um, they planted, they planted the cotton, they planted uh, the orchards, they've, they've helped build the kitchens. Um, and when freedom comes, they regard pieces of this as, as back pain. And, and some of the stories I came across were, were quite amazing. I'm mostly in Friedman's bureau reports. And, and one is a white woman wakes up and, and one of her former slaves um, is dismantling the kitchen. The kitchens usually are, are, are separate from the house because they catch fire. You'd want to bring your house down. So they're like, they're like 10 feet away. Um, and just so what he's doing, so well, I'm moving over here to my piece of land. He said, I, you know, I, I helped build the kitchen and, and now I'm going to kind of take it back. Or there's a guy who's digging up apple trees. Yeah. So I, I planted these and, and there's, there's 10 of them and I planted some. So I'm going to take three and move them over here. Um, and of course, the U.S. Army is is trying to either take cotton out when they capture it or, or burn it. And you have slaves, ex-slaves now, saying, "No, no, no, no. We planted this, and this is ours, and we plan to to market it and put money in our pockets." So they have they have the same, they've always worked hard. They've just worked hard for other people. Now they want to work hard for themselves. John Locke would be pleased. I mean, it's completely his theory of labor and and, sure. and, and property. Uh, ironically <laughs> enough, about about Lincoln too. Um, because, you know, the, the hardcore abolitionist view, and for most of the war, Frederick Douglass is, is a Lincoln critic, um, is that Lincoln never, he never issues these kind of declarations of the rights of man, the Emancipation Proclamation is, is very sort of legalistic, it's, it's very dry, it doesn't have these kind of Jeffersonian tones, but but it's that, that kind of economic argument um, that makes the Republicans and Lincoln so dangerous to the white South. You know, William Lloyd Garrison and John Brown get up and say, you know, love the black man like your brother. And, and John Brown, about four northern whites, buy that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln gets up and says, especially in 58 when he's being race baited in, in the Senate debates by, by Stephen Douglas, he says, look, you know, I'm not for black voting rights. I'm not for, for blacks being on juries. I'm certainly not for interracial marriage. And he said, but, but I am for the right of a black man to do what I've done, get up early, cold shower, work hard, put money in your pocket, become, in his case, a wealthy corporate attorney. Um, and, and in that way, the black man is my equal. And, and, and Bubba, the Illinois voter, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. And then yeah. like it says, hey, you know, Jeff Davis, who does no labor, looks down his nose at you because you're out there, Joe Farmer, working in the fields. Davis is riding around on his horse, directing traffic on his estate, uh, you know, sipping his, his mint juleps. Um, and, and because you are the, the hardworking um, American, you know, these, these, these planters are sneering at you. You know, and, and again, Bubba the farmer gets that, which is why the, the White South is right. The Republicans are a danger to them, in, in part because they're making this kind of labor-based, almost sort of racist um, anti-slavery appeal. Mm -hmm. What's some uh, some other ways in which uh, blacks began, to, one of the most notable ways that blacks began to establish agency is through education. Uh, give us some examples of, of that. Well, you know, historians sort of guesstimate how many blacks were literate before the war. And it's just it's just sort of a guess, maybe you know, kind of 5%. Every plantation had to have at least one or two literate uh, drivers, people who could sort of run the estate while the master or the overseer are gone. And so they become they become sort of the nucleus of schools. And, and um, what I discovered is that freed people immediately are demanding things. Uh, they, they, want, they want a piece of land, is back pay, they want political rights. Um, and the number one thing they want are decent schools for their children. They want they want integrated, free public education. Um, 
Bear in mind, only four Southern states, South Carolina was one of them, flatly banned uh, black literacy before the war. But certainly it was frowned on. If you tried to build a school for blacks, somebody would come along and you know, burn it down before the war. And you give a stat in, in Tennessee where blacks could attend schools, 150 out of 160,000 students are black. We're yeah. 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 But, but bear in mind also because wealthy planters brought in Yale tutors to educate their children. Most states did not have free public education, even for middle class, working class. Right. White. Um, and so which, again, when, when blacks start calling for integrated free public schools, um, that, that's a really dramatic, radical demand, which is also, of course, very, very good for middle class and impoverished white people. If they'll advantage of it. And that starts to create a coalition uh, between between them, um, which the sort of certainly the wealthy planners are very uh, uh, frightened of. Uh, but we also I should also point out that I mean the idea of black children going to school or any blacks going to school is as destructive of the ideology of slavery as blacks enlisting in the army. Sure. I mean the whole the whole idea that supports American slavery of course is is that African Americans um, are childlike they're, they're simple they, they can't they can't understand uh, complicated economic theory political theory um, and of course and of course what what planters want when the war is over is everybody back in the fields like like it had been before the war young old men women children um, and so for a child to spend part of the year in the field is is as far as the former planters are concerned is to take away part of their labor but also yeah it's a violation of the idea that that black people are simple um, and and of course you know, black adults understand that they're, they're, they're probably not going to get a piece of land. They're certainly hoping to hold on to voting rights. Um, but the one thing that can't be taken away is is education and literacy. Um, and I've got some numbers in the book. And, and, and we do. in terms of just these, these enormous jumps in literacy. And again, that, that's one thing even when black voting rights are taken away in North Carolina, um, that can't be that can't be erased. He, he, um, as a state superintendent explained to Oliver o. Howard, there was no place of any size where such a school was not attempted by colored people. We have just emerged from a terrific war. Peace is not yet declared. There is scarcely a beginning of reorganized society at the South, yet a people long imbruted by slavery were transforming cabins into schools. What other, quote, what other people have shown such a passion for education? I mean, they're, they're, they immediately turn um, the, the biggest, the biggest building on any plantation into the school. Um, churches, of course, immediately become schools, which again is why they're being targeted by by white vigilantes because the, the churches are a focal point of kind of black political organization and, and social autonomy, but they're also they're also schools. And so you have these these amazing stories where. Black men get up in the middle of the night to go chop wood so the school is is heated before they put in you know a very long day in the fields. Um, I mean this is something that they just they just are desperate to get uh, mostly for their children. But but every school has has somebody my age um, sitting back because they've been they've been you know denied this and they want to work very very hard to catch up. Let's talk. Um, there's tons more we could talk about education, but let's go to black uh, conventions. So we discussed the convention in the north in Syracuse, but then there are ton. There are numerous conventions in the southern states um, following the war. What are they for? What do they do? Right. I mean, they move across the south immediately, um, and, and basically every 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 city, big and small, 
um, has one. Um, um, and and the, they want a variety of things, but usually they're being organized um, by by black veterans. Um, bear in mind, of the 180,000 black men who fight for the U.S. during the war, 141,000 are former slaves. Um, so so a lot of them are black Virginians, black Mississippians who simply come back home when the war is over. Um, they've risked their lives. And now they want political rights. Uh, they want to run for office. They want decent schools. Um, and again, these are people who, who faced... <laughs> You know, Confederate bullets, and and so they're not they're not easily cowed. Uh, in many cases, these are the guys who also run for office. They note in the book of the 500, 1,510 identifiable people of color who serve in state, local, federal office. At least 130 are ex ex military, and that that's typical of my dad's generation. You know, 1945, people who run for office in 46, 47 are are still wearing their uniforms. Um, and and yeah, these are people who are really determined to transform the South uh, politically, socially. Economically, um, and again, their their kind of big three agenda is land reform, political rights, and of course, these guys immediately start running for office themselves, um, and then decent schools. And the sound has vanished. What's the what's the land reform agenda? How would you describe that? Well. Um, what what they want is um, a piece of the pie, and of course, the, the kind of standard story is that that there's this sort of notion of forty acres and a mule. But there's there's a reason for that. That's not that's not a myth. Um, when Sherman gets to the Carolina coast, he, he meets with with black activists, mostly ministers, in Savannah, and he says, "Well, you know what what do you want?" And they said, "Well, we want land. You know that we worked all these years for no compensation, and and now we are we are owed." you know, a piece of the soil. Um, and of course, bear in mind, there are giant chunks of the South where wh whites have just fled. Uh, the Carolina coast, areas around New Orleans. And so when white soldiers arrive, blacks have already moved into the big house. I mean, there's, there's no kind of whites to be pushed away. Um, on top of that, there's huge numbers of Southern boys who don't come marching home when the war is over. Um, and so there's that land that's available too. And, and at one point, Lincoln is sort of speculating on what kind of land we're talking about. Lincoln says, well, you know, maybe 40 acres. Um, is not a bad idea. So this is this is not some kind of myth that's concocted by the black community. I mean, you know, people in Washington are talking about forty acres, and and um, that strikes most rural people as being as being a decent. Yeah, that's. that's I think that's about what a one man with a mule can cultivate with a little help from family members and maybe one a hired hand or something like that. I mean, and and of course the Freedmen's Bureau, which is created in in the spring of '65 as the war is winding down, um, the the long title of that 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 organization is "End Abandoned Refugee Lands," and so it's designed to get people um, who are refugees. And of course, there's there's literally millions of refugees in the South. There's four million Black Americans were freed by the war. Um, it's designed to get them on a piece of land. And you mentioned John Locke before. It's a very kind of Lockean idea. People work harder for themselves than for anybody else. Um, and you can make, I think, a very compelling argument that, that Southern poverty would not have been what it was well into the New Deal years um, had, had Black Americans been given as back payment a piece of land to work on their own. Yeah. And that doesn't happen because Lincoln goes to the theater. Yeah. Um, the other, uh, one of the other, the, the, trying to change the black codes is another uh, direct, actually, another mission of these conventions. And one of them is sort of the marriage covenant, the marriage law. Why is that so important to the newly freed people? Well, and, and right, one of the first things that, that, that black Southerners do when, when U.S. armies arrive is, is flock uh, to the local courthouse, courthouse or they find, they find a... Um, 
a, a black chaplain with a local army unit. Um, these, in most cases, are relationships that existed before the war but have not been sanctified by the state. Um, and of course, they're hoping that January 1, 66, will be the day of Jubilee, that there'll be land distribution. And so therefore, they want to have a legalized marriage to legalize their union, their children, and then be able to then secure that piece of land and pass it on to the next generation. So for them, these these are these are all interrelated things. These, these are not kind of separate hopes yeah. they have. They, I mean, they're establishing themselves as economic actors while also sanctifying their marriage before God. I mean, it's a very yes. complex set of, uh, yeah. you know, ideologies, beliefs that are going on at the same time. Um, what are some of the other black codes that they're trying to alter? How, how does this lead to, well, this leads to sort of the trouble in Washington, your yeah. argument. Well, I mean, um, a lot of the states, and, and they're being given the, the green light by, by the accidental president, Andrew Johnson. I mean, Johnson's position basically is um, you can't actually re-enslave people, but absent that, any other kind of labor control you want to have is fine by him. He's, of course, very hostile to black voting rights. Whereas in Lincoln's final speech, he talks about how black veterans have earned the right to vote, and, and people like Frederick Douglass, he calls them, are more intelligent Negroes, Lincoln's phrase. Um, and, and and this is, the by the way, that, that comment is why John Wilkes Booth decided to kill yeah. him. Uh, yeah, Booth is in the audience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so what, what, what white state assemblies try to do in summer 65, early 66, um, essentially is to get around the 13th Amendment uh, and, and reimpose slavery but not use that name, uh, blacks have to have long-term labor contracts by January 1, or the state will assign them one. Uh, they vary from state to state, but there's a lot of kind of creative legal borrowing going on. Um, they're not allowed to, to buy land, they're not allowed to lease land, they're not allowed to carry weapons, and of course a lot of these guys are ex-army who have weapons, and so the idea is to, is to take their weapons away from them. Um, and basically turn them into kind of a, a politically powerless rural proletariat who have no option except to go back onto the estates where they worked for the war um, and, and work um, either for very low wages or in kind of a sharecropping sort of arrangement. Uh, but the idea they can't rent or buy land is, is designed to make, give them essentially no kind of economic options except to go back mm -hmm. to the estates. Oh, they, they often insist that, that all members of the family um, have to have a labor contract, which again is designed to get children out of schools. Um, Several make being uppity a crime. So talking back to your, you know, your former master. Um, so that, yeah, there really are attempts to kind of get around the Thirteenth Amendment, um, and it's one of the things that convinces white northern moderates that, that that the South essentially can't be trusted. You know, they, they they've already had one shot; they secede, they lose that, and now they're they're trying again. And, and this is for the white North. I just kind of the the deal breaker. And and we should I, I, obviously they did at the time uh, saw this very much as a continuation of the Civil War. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that's certainly on Grant's mind in 1867, 1868. Um, so, and he's a classic example of a moderate Republican, you know, yep. uh, has no desire to start the war again. But this is this situation is increasingly intolerable. Um, yeah. This leads to the impeachment of uh, Andrew Johnson. Um, we should just note that that's often seen as a great senatorial congressional overreach he's a sort of presidential martyr um really he isn't uh, but we'll, right. we'll pass over that um it, by the 1870s uh what has changed we have to we have to be a little brisk here what's changed for, for the free blacks of the south um, what's the condition? What's the state of the black codes? What's the state of education? What's the state of their political representation? 
Well, what's they still are, of course, um, in Congress. And again, they're there in Congress. There's there's 22 African Americans who serve in Congress uh, from 1869 uh, down to 1901, and then and then huge huge uh, operations in state assemblies, sheriffs, juries, that kind of thing. Um, what really starts to work against them, of course, is, is white vigilantism. Um, 1867 is the Reconstruction Act. It's also the year that sees the organization of the Klan. Congress responds to the Klan with a series of laws, and this is the Grant presidency. Um, laws called the Klan Act, which are designed to crush the Klan. And, and the Attorney General, who actually is a Georgian uh, named Amos Ackerman, who, who's one of these Southerners who thinks, okay, we should turn the page and move ahead here, um, is in charge of this. And, and the good news is the federal government... Uh, they declare martial law in counties in South Carolina. I mean, they really crush the Klan. The bad news is what they do is they decentralize it and drive it underground. Um, and, and white, usually ex-Confederates, realize what they don't have to do is get 40 guys and put on robes and torches. Um, they, they know who the local activists are. Um, there's one guy who will have the, the, the tickets, which are the precursors to modern ballots. Um, and, and so you and your and your pal, your cousin, you, know, you ride to his house in the middle of the night, you lie in the deep grass, you shoot him when he comes out the door in the morning, um, and then you ride away. You don't have to put on you know, a robe. Um, and, and because that guy had the tickets, and there, there's one case I talk about in the book where the next day, there are no Republican votes in that county because the guy who had the ballots um, is shot. Um, and they they learn that that you can you can kill democratic movements and of course in you know in our lifetime Tiananmen Square demonstrated that uh, simply by by killing enough people especially on the lower level mm -hmm. uh, if you kill um, and there there are a handful of black assemblymen who are assassinated but that makes the news um, what I found mostly reading bureau reports is if you kill some local poll worker. Um, it'll make the, a local paper, it'll make a bureau report, but it's not going to make the, the, the Washington, you know, newspapers, the New York papers. Um, and, and if you shoot enough local people, uh, no one wants to take their place. Um, and, and so you can kind of stop. They understand that, that today's poll workers, tomorrow's state assemblyman, tomorrow's state assemblyman is next year's congressman, next year's congressman is Blanche Bruce, black U.S. senator. Um, and so you eliminate them early on. Um, and, and so that, that's kind of really what's happening on the ground is the war is continuing in a very sort of decentralized way. And what, I thought at one point about calling the book the, the Reconstruction the Reconstruction War. Yeah. Um, and my editor's like, mm, no, we're not going to do that. So. Well, I, I often tell my students that there's two phases of the Civil War. Uh, the first was a conventional military campaign. The Union won. The second phase was insurgency. The Confederacy yeah. won. Uh, yeah. And that's kind of what this is a classic insurgency. It's classic guerrilla warfare. It's uh, yeah. amazing. It's not studied as such. Uh, and some people have, but there's tons more to be done on it, actually, it's, it seems to me. I think so too. Uh, you know, Robert Smalls, who who is a former slave and kind of a war hero, he's the one who, who steals the South Carolina ship called the Planter, gets it yeah. out of Charleston, is then in Congress. He's keeping data. And one of the things I discovered when I was reading these books, reading these, these papers like Branch Blues, is because they are the one black senator or hey, there's a black congressman. Blacks from all over the country are writing to them. Um, and, and Smalls is keeping data. In one of his speeches, he says 53,000. Black activists, poll workers, people like Octavius Cato, who's integrating streetcars in Philadelphia. Um, Cato was shot in Philadelphia three times yeah, in the head yeah, by a, yeah, on election day. Yeah, election day. And and, and fifty-three thousand—that's that, a bigger number than the casualties at, at, at Gettysburg. Yeah. 
Um, and the fact that Smalls doesn't say about 50,000, he says 53,000. He's keeping numbers. Yeah. He's keeping numbers. Yeah. The, uh, so the conclusion is reconstruction didn't fall. It didn't fail. It was pushed. It was killed. It was killed. Yeah. Um, literally killed. Yeah. Uh, and we should, we don't even have time to get into this, but as we just said, Octavius Cato is killed in Philadelphia. Uh, some of the people involved in his murder also started a quote unquote riot, uh, intimidation in Camden, New Jersey, uh, which is uh, 50, 30 minutes north of where I'm sitting. This yeah. is not just a Southern story. Um, sure. Sure. Right. There's stories in the book of um, a black, a black soldier who's home in Manhattan to bury his daughter. He's on leave. Um, is attacked by by white toughs because he gets on a streetcar wearing a blue uniform, uh, and that's Manhattan. And of course, there's the draft rights during the war in Manhattan. So, so I mean, you know, uh, this is this is not simply a Southern story. And it's also a battle for integration of transport in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and the right Sacram to, right to vote in Sac yep. Sacramento, San Francisco. Yep. We we could go on. Yep. Um, let's move forward. Um, you wrote this book uh, very much looking at. Um, what was going on around you. You conclude by discussing a um, controversy in Charleston over putting up a monument uh, yeah. to, to Denmark Vesey. Um, I know you were interviewed a lot after the Charleston murders um, at uh, Mother Emanuel. Yeah. Um, what are your further thoughts? Uh, having done that, what kind of questions were you being asked by people about history, about the past, and how did you respond to them? Right. Well, the, the usual question is, what what was the relationship of, of this former slave turned activist, um, Denmark Vesey, to to the original AME Church in Charleston? Of course, he was one of the co-founders, and. Um, and I think that the questions I was getting from the press was, why this one church? Um, and the point I was trying to make is that, that the Amy Church in, in Charleston is not just any black church in the South. It, it was it was the biggest, still is, the biggest black church south of Philadelphia. Um, it was the offshoot of the big Philadelphia church. And so it was kind of the center of, of black activism. And, and, and like Phoenix, uh, it just kept rising again. So after Vesey's conspiracy in 1822, about half of the people who want to start this this plot and become free are members of the church. Uh, the church is raised. Uh, the, the city authorities actually announced it's going to be dismantled. Uh, they exile the ministers, uh, Morris Brown, Charles Court of Philadelphia. Uh, but it's rebuilt in 65. Um, and, and that's where actually my reconstruction book begins because Robert Vesey, who had been enslaved uh, near Savannah, who becomes free, of course, by the war, but had been trained by dad as a carpenter. Um, Vesey was a carpenter. Um, rebuilds the church in 65. That was the church that was destabilized in the 1880s by the earthquake. And, and so the church that is there now um, is built on the spot where the 1865 post-Civil War church. So it, when when the, the, the assassin, I don't want to use his name, um, went into that church, he understood the history of that institution. Uh, there was a major march out of the church in 1963. Martin King spoke there. Um, they have a statue uh, in the in the church actually. Four children listening to a sermon. They're supposed to be listening to Denmark Vesey give a give a sermon as a kind of a lay minister. Um, so so the, the the church and the whole question of the statue, which got partly put up, um, were, were kind of tied together. And so it's it's the most historic black church in the South. I mean, it, it's very much a kind of reconstruction creation. Um, it is, 
throughout this book, I have to say, you, we, you spent a lot of time in the epilogue talking about statues and remembrance. Um, if anyone choose to, this is, there's a mine of people who deserve commemoration in order to fill out the grounds of our memory. Um, Robert Smalls, I, I yeah. hope to be uh, still alive when we finally see a, a, a statue of Robert Smalls at the ship's wheel in Charleston Battery. I think that yeah. would be that would be fantastic. Uh, uh, his, his, he, his, the whole exploit of stealing the planner is, it, it was one thing, but there's a lot more that makes him a, a great American uh, hero. Uh, to be blunt, um, Octa Octavius Caddo. Uh, we need a statue of him in Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there, there's there's all these things to fill out our memory and begin to therefore adjust the ways in which we to the ways in which we think and relate to the Reconstruction. And and and, and obviously the, the question of the Beasley statue being put up uh, you know, predated the shooting and and. Uh, um, that had been going on oh since since at least about 2000 and and uh, so I'd, I'd read the Charleston Post Courier and read the, the online comments people were writing in saying well you know he was like Hitler just wanted to kill people and my response was no he just kind of wanted to free his children and his yeah. family and, and uh, so yeah how people are remembered or, or when they're not and and again if you've been to Charleston everybody's got a statue Calhoun's got a statue. Andrew Jackson's mother has a plaque. Um, you know, every white person above the rank of staff sergeant has has you know a statue or a plaque in South Carolina. And um, right, and, and so when people were, were suggesting alternatives to Vesey, one was Robert Smalls, one was Chubby Checker of all things. Um, well, Martin, he might need a statue too. I mean, eventually, <laughs> you know, Andrew Jackson's mother has one. I say Chuck Berry, but anyway, but 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 yeah, but you're exactly right. Why not? Why not? All of them. Uh, yeah. There finally is now a plaque down near the water where Fort Wagner was, uh, where the soldiers of the 54th, uh, you know, fought uh, on, on July 1863. And and so, you know, people are, are catching up. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm usually not an advocate of taking statues down. I'm, I'm an advocate of adding more statues or adding commentary to already existing statues. Yeah, I, I think that we need to make um, our statuary needs to be as complex as our history. Yeah, um, yeah, and rather than uh, that's just another way of simplifying it um, is to tear statues down. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's any. Yeah, it's no. It's no final solution to use a terrible turn of phrase. Um, well, Douglas Egerton, thanks so much for being with us uh, today. Um, you're the, uh, talking about Reconstruction. If you were going to leave us uh, with one thing to take away of Reconstruction before we read your book, a terrible question to ask you as we go out, but sure. what's, what's the, what should we take away uh, as we think about Reconstruction? I guess I would, I would simply say that the importance um, of, of struggle. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I found so sad about the book is that had, had these issues been dealt with adequately in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, they, they would not have to be refought in the 1950s and, and, and 1960s. Had, had segregation not emerged in, in Jim Crow in the 1890s, um, Martin King would, would not have had to be out there. He would have been a nice minister and still alive. Um, and so um, it, it, it reminds us that, yeah, that, that there always is this need to be pushing uh, and, and to kind of you know, um, struggle for that, that agenda. Yeah, I, I would uh, I have to say it also makes uh, if we think about what progressive means. I mean, of course, in 1860, 1861, Alexander Stevens clearly says that he's progressive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he says it. It's there, he's modern and other people are not. Yeah. Um, so that that's another topic for another day. Um, 
My guest today has been Douglas Egerton, among other things. He's author of The Wars of Reconstruction, The Brief Violent History of America's Most Progressive Era. Douglas Egerton, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks so much. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leimbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. <laughs>